Good morning. My name is Ben. I have the privilege of serving as the new family pastor here at Common Ground. It's great to see you all this morning. So today we're doing part two in our family series. And if you were here last week, you might have heard Derek talk about how we're doing this series a little bit different than what you might have expected from a traditional family series. We're, we're looking a little bit more at the heart issue of what's going on within our relationships. If you missed last week, I highly encourage you to check it out on the website and watch it because we're kind of building a foundation in this series, each, one build, each message kind of building upon the last one. So highly recommend that you do that. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in Ephesians chapter 5. So go ahead and fire up those apps, grab that Bible under the, t- uh, the chair in front of you. Ephesians chapter 5, we're looking at page 1,081. I think they're blue, the blue Bibles underneath the tables. Ephesians chapter 5, but first, who here loves ice cream? Wow, I am not alone. I came to the right church, all right. I love ice cream. The happiest place on earth for me isn't Disney. It's Cold Stone, Baskin Robbins, uh, Swenson's. Do y'all remember Swenson's? I I love this church. Did you know they're all gone? They closed their final locations in 2001. I cried. It It was a sad year for a lot of reasons. I don't really have a favorite flavor. I'm what you might call an equal opportunity ice cream consumer. In fact, even though I hate licorice, I once tried homemade licorice ice cream at a a church event, actually, just because it was ice cream. It was awful. (laughs) My tongue was black for days. All I could taste was licorice for like a week. But I could still appreciate it because it was ice cream. It's kind of strange. What about you guys? Where do you turn to for satisfaction? I had to make some lifestyle changes a couple years ago, so I naturally turned to some of those keto options, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. But no matter how many brands I tried, no matter how many different flavors, no matter how much I ate, I was never quite satisfied. Why? Because they're fake. It's not the real thing. And they're gross, let's be honest, okay? That keto stuff, no thanks. So again, where do you turn for satisfaction? What brings you satisfaction? Craving satisfaction isn't unique to me and my my love of ice cream. I, I asked Google, because Google knows a lot. I said, hey Google, what is satisfaction? About this time, usually a phone goes off. Good job, guys. You turned your phones off. Good job. (laughs) Google gave me 1.42 billion, that's with a B, billion responses in less than half a second. So again, clearly mankind wants to know the answer to this question. I saw lots of stuff there. Obviously, I didn't go through all those. That would take like decades. I saw lots of answers about having the right career having the right house, the the right body, the right living situation, or or just being happy with yourself through some kind of a a zen meditative state. 
the world is constantly bombarding us with this message that if we have the right things or look the right way, we can be satisfied. And the scary thing is, this has even permeated our understanding of relationships as well. For instance, if your children play all the right sports or make the right grades, maybe you'll be satisfied. If your spouse loves you or respects you the way that you want to be loved or respected, maybe you'll be satisfied. Or if your parents would start treating you like a grown-up and stop nitpicking all of your decisions and stop hovering, maybe you'll be satisfied. But is that really how it works? Have any of you found satisfaction in, in, in this way, in, in, in the created world or in your relationships? Can we even be satisfied? If the answer is yes, how does this occur? What's the secret? What's the answer to life, the universe, and everything? No, it's not 42. Thank you, Derek. He got that reference. Oh, I see another chuckle. Cool. My people. There's nothing inherently wrong with high-achieving kids. I firmly believe we can experience a kind of peace when everything seems to be going the right way for us, when, when our job is going well, when our finances are in order, when we're healthy and, and our families are getting along. It feels good to be treated with love and respect. But what happens when you experience conflict where you turn for satisfaction? Like, what, what happens when your super fit 10 out of 10 spouse bites your head off and is rude to you? Or what happens when your all-star kid decides to get drunk and crashes the new car? Did that happen? <laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> or, or what happens when your parents tell you we're getting a divorce? These are real questions. These are real problems. Can we still be satisfied in these relationships when everything seems to be falling apart or when there's conflict? The answer, which, which may surprise you, is yes. But it might not be the yes that you're expecting. Let's see what scripture has to say about the secret to finding satisfaction. So back to Ephesians chapter 5, where we left off last week. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians just spent four chapters explaining how believers in Christ are justified by faith, prepared to do good works in the name of Christ, and because of God's perfect plan, we can actually put off our old self and put on our new self. If you were here last week, there was the jacket analogy, okay? Putting off the old self and putting on the new. Paul then directly mentions part of the secret that we're going to try to understand this morning. So let's begin reading in verse 1, Ephesians 5, verse 1. Because of who we are in Christ, because of putting off the old and putting on the new, therefore, in verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints." Let there be no filthiness, nor, nor foolish, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. Okay, so you might hear this passage and focus on the parts about sexual immorality and say, I don't do those things. I'm good. This isn't about me. If by God's grace that is not an area of struggle for you, praise God. Again, well, what about, what about the, the filthy or foolish talk or the crude joking? Again, you might be thinking, no, Ben, I, I'm good in that area. That, that's not about me. Again, praise God. But then Paul uses this fancy word called covetousness. And before you dismiss this as well, let's explore what this means. Put simply, covetousness is a sinful desire for something you don't have. And this could be material goods, an attractive body, the, the ability to speak in front of a crowd, the esteem of men, the respect of your children, the right political party in power, or quite literally, anything or any idea within the created world. The reason we want these things is we see others who have them and we desire what they have because it, it looks good and because the world is constantly telling us you deserve the good things, you deserve what you want. Or maybe we fantasize about the perfect world if only these circumstances would change or if I had this ability or, or if the right people were in power then maybe I'd be satisfied. This sin problem, though, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, where, where God created a perfect situation for the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. But they weren't satisfied with what God had offered and were convinced they needed something more than what God had provided. Sure, the serpent deceived Eve with, with lies disguised as half-truths about what would happen to her if she ate from the forbidden tree. But really, all he did was reveal her heart motivations. Check this out in Genesis 3.6. When the woman saw the, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, looks good, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. That's a good thing too, right? Oh, I want wisdom. She took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with, with her and he ate it. Adam then goes on to blame Eve. Eve goes on to blame the serpent. But notice that all three experienced the consequences because as much as we like to blame other people for our problems, our sin is ours to own. People can tempt us and influence us, 
But ultimately, if I can blame somebody else for my sin, I'm not responsible. That doesn't make sense. The first humans heard a message from the world that contradicted what God had set forth as his law, but validated their inner desires. And they willfully chose to disobey God. To covet something literally means to worship that thing, which is why it's also called an idol. And those who worship idols are idolaters. To be human is to be a worshiper, always. It is our created purpose. I was blessed to travel to India a couple years ago and witness the idol worship that often comes to mind when when we think about idolatry, where a a wooden figure on a pedestal uh, represents some kind of deity and the person offers incense and prayers and sacrifices to this craven image in order to win the favor of the gods. But if that's the extent of our understanding of idolatry, it's time for a swift dose of reality, followed by some reflection and probably some confession. The question isn't, do I have idols in my life? But rather, what are they and where do they hide? Idol worship happens when we are deceived by our own desires and adopt the message from the world that says God can't satisfy. We need to look elsewhere. Just like what happened with Adam and Eve, literally nothing has changed. So so what are these secret idols? Well, almost anything. The success of your children can become an idol. A healthy, attractive body can become an idol. Safety and security, the right job, the right neighborhood, the right social status, the right people in power. Even a desire to be married can become an idol. Now, now mind you, neither the Apostle Paul nor I are advocating for a life without desire. That's actually called Buddhism. That's not where we're going today. It's perfectly okay to desire things and have goals in this life. It's okay to have standards and even some expectations. It's when those desires and goals contradict God's word or replace God on the thrones of our worshiping hearts that good desires become idols. So how do we know when this happens? How do we know when a desire, a good desire, becomes an idol. This is not in your notes. I encourage you to write this down. Here's a hint. If you're willing to sin to get it, or if you sin when you don't get it, whatever it is just became an idol. Let me say that again. If you're willing to sin to get it, or if you're or if you sin when you don't get it, whatever it is in that moment is the thing that you're worshiping. When you lose your temper at your disobedient children, your desire for their obedience has become an idol. When your spouse's criticism becomes an excuse for you to withhold your love and affection, 
your desire for his or her approval just became an idol. When you stay out past curfew, because you youth never do that, right? When you stay out past curfew because you think your parents' rules are unreasonable, your desire for independence just became an idol. Again, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these desires. But how you respond when those desires aren't met or what you're willing to do in order to be satisfied will immediately reveal what you are worshiping in that moment. And a very common place for these idolatrous desires to hide is in the family and in our relationships. If these earthly relationships become the focus of our quest for satisfaction, then they will also become the focus of our worship. We can't help but worship. It's fundamental to being a human being. We were created to do so. No one, not one single human, exists in a worshipless vacuum. We are all, and at all times, worshiping something or someone. Okay, so you might be wondering, what does this have to do with satisfaction? Great question. That's why, we, that's why we're here. Have you discovered the secret yet? What does it have to do with desires and worship? Well, let's go back to our text. Let's go back to Ephesians 5, and we're going to start at verse 8 and see what we can pull out concerning satisfaction. Ephesians 5, 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The Apostle Paul says that you ought to recognize, we ought to recognize our adoptive identity. Just like Pastor Derek preached last week. This is where it starts, and it's super, super important. You were once a child of darkness, slaves to sin under the, 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 the righteous penalty of a holy God. But now you are a child of light in the Lord. This identity reminder ought to drive us to a lifestyle of humility because we have been gifted something we could never earn to pay a debt we could never afford. When we find ourselves frustrated by the search for satisfaction in our relationships, it's a really good indication that we have forgotten our adoptive identity. Then he says, walk as children of light. Live out your new identity as you constantly offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Renew your mind day by day and adopt the mindset of Christ. This means putting off sinful thoughts, words, actions, attitudes, motivations, desires, and be constantly refreshed in the gospel that saved you. Well, how do we, how do we know how to walk as children of light? Well, Psalm 119, verse 105, says that God's word is a lamp for our feet. It's the light for our path. We don't have to guess how to walk as children of light because we have God's word and Christ as the ultimate example. There's nothing passive about walking as children of the light. The power to do so, this is important, the power to do so comes from the Holy Spirit, but the obedience is all on you as you study God's word, as you go to that source, and as you learn to live as Christ. 
And lastly, Paul says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, biblical discernment is something that I'm particularly passionate about uh, because unfortunately I've witnessed its either absence or abuse all too often within the body of Christ. Walking as, as children of light is, is clear, not easy, it's clear because of God's word. But discernment can be, can be kind of tricky sometimes. People ask, whom shall I marry? What, what college should I go to? Where should I live? Should I take this job? How do I know if I've made the right decision? Biblical discernment is rooted in two, two sides of the same, co- uh, the same coin. Faith and wisdom. We're not going to get into the weeds too much here because that's coming down, down the pipeline. But let, for now, let's keep it simple. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that it is impossible, not hard, impossible to please God without faith. But sometimes it can be hard to discern between two choices that seem to have viable options for giving God glory. Well, that's where the wisdom comes into play. And this starts with acknowledging the source of wisdom, God Almighty, and then asking for it. As it says in James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Again, more to this process. Stay tuned. It's coming in the weeks ahead. Okay, so let's get back to our secret. You still might be thinking, okay, Ben, so how do we find satisfaction? What does recognizing our adoptive identity, walking as children of light, and trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord have to do with satisfaction? Great job. You guys ask good questions. Turn with me in your Bible just a few pages over to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, that's on page 1085 in those blue Bibles. Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul writes, I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. I have learned the secret to being content. Read that satisfaction because it means the same thing. I have learned the secret to being satisfied in any and every circumstance, whether full or hungry, or whether having plenty or being poor. So Paul was a human, just like the rest of us, which means he was also a worshiper. He knew the joy of companionship and the pain of loneliness. He knew the ecstasy of sharing the gospel with those who were lost, with co-laborers in Christ, and the sting when those same people abandoned him. He knew the delight of freedom and the heartache of prison. He was beaten. He was whipped. He had amazing friendships and people who wanted to kill him. He got to do the thing he loved most and paid the price for it over and over and over again. Then he tells us he knows the secret to contentment, to satisfaction. When life is good, and when it's all falling apart. Well, Paul, what is it? What's the secret? Go back one chapter. He reveals it in chapter 3 as he discusses his purpose. In chapter 3, Paul calls his accomplishments and standing before men as trash in comparison with the superior value of knowing Christ his Lord. He writes that he has lost everything for the sake of knowing Christ. Well, what did he lose? He lost reputation, 
career, a promising future as a leader of his people, family, friends, relationships, freedom, health, safety, security. But what he lost, he thinks of as sewer trash, super gross, Paul, as sewer trash so that he might gain Christ and be found in Christ having a righteousness that wasn't self-righteousness, but rather from the faithfulness of Christ. It is the righteousness of God that is based in faith. The righteousness that Paul found comes from knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection, and participating in his sufferings. It includes being conformed to his death so that he, Paul, could possibly reach the goal of the resurrection of the dead. Then he writes this in chapter 3, verse 12. It's not that I have already reached this goal or have already been perfected, but I pursue it so that I may grab hold of it because Christ grabbed hold of me for this purpose. What does Paul identify as his purpose, his created purpose? To know Christ and the power of his resurrection. To worship God. He continues, brothers and sisters, I, don't, I myself don't think I've reached it. What is it? Well, it's, it's the goal, Christ's likeness. He freely admits he hasn't arrived. But he says, but I do this one thing. I forget about the things behind me, and I reach out for the things of, ahead of me. The goal I pursue is the prize of God's upward call in Christ Jesus. So all of us who are spiritually mature should think this way. And, and if anyone thinks differently, God will reveal it to him or her. Only let's live in a way that is consistent with whatever level we have reached. Let's live in a way that's consistent with our adoptive identity. Let's walk in the light. Let's try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and then do it. Notice the warning against complacency. Instead of adopting the mindset of I have arrived, Paul says he continues to run the race for the duration of his time on earth not because he has to earn his salvation, but because his goal is to leave this world as much like Jesus as possible. Did you catch the answer? True satisfaction is a life dedicated to becoming more and more like Christ because Christ is the goal and the prize. So how do we do this? Well, we've... we've already covered it several times, by recognizing our adoptive identity, by walking in the light, by trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Scripture makes it extremely clear that we can be satisfied regardless of our circumstance when our worship is directed towards God. But we ought never be satisfied with our condition and our condition is, we're still sinners. We haven't arrived yet. When we, we are still in the process of becoming transformed more and more like Jesus Christ. Guys, when, when we adopt this worship mindset, everything changes. And I mean absolutely everything. Especially our relationships. Again, this starts as Pastor Derek preached last week, with a proper understanding of what it means to be a part of God's family, recognizing our need for a Savior who rescues us out of the kingdom of darkness, 
who pays the penalty for our sin and brings us into the kingdom of God, into his family. That's where it starts. But, but salvation isn't a one-time prayer. Sometimes we, we, we use the word salvation when really we mean the word justification, which is a fancy Bible word for, for when two parties are in conflict with each other, but there's peace made between them. This does happen one time in a biblical sense. This happens because of what Jesus did on the cross. When you submit your life to the rule and authority of King Jesus, you are made right with God. You are justified. The rest of your time on earth is your sanctification, the process whereby God, through God the Holy Spirit, partners with you to transform you into becoming more and more like Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul meant in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we are to die to ourselves daily and our minds are to be renewed to become more like Christ. Your time on earth, if you are part of God's family, and I mean every single moment, every experience, every circumstance, every person you encounter is an opportunity given to you by sovereign God to make you more like Jesus. Your child's disobedience is an opportunity to make you more like Jesus. Your spouse's criticism is an opportunity for you to become more like Jesus. Your parents' rules are an opportunity for you to become more like Jesus. The job you have, the children God has blessed you with, that terrible boss, the outpost group member who is really hard to love, the family you're born into, that neighbor who constantly lets his dog do his business on your lawn. All of life, if you are part of God's family, is divinely orchestrated by your loving Heavenly Father to bring about opportunities for your holiness to develop and grow. If you aren't part of God's family, then all of those moments are designed to show you your need for that justification purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross so that you too can experience true satisfaction. The Apostle Paul laid out his accomplishments before men in Philippians and called it sewer trash, still gross, compared to a life dedicated to pursuing holiness. Not because those things were trash in and of themselves, but compared to the satisfaction found in God alone, this world, including the relationships we've been blessed with, offer sewer trash level satisfaction where we will inevitably find heartache, disappointment, and futility. This is why Paul was able to declare satisfaction in every circumstance while acknowledging dissatisfaction with his sinful condition. When you try to find satisfaction elsewhere, guys, it's the same as saying you're satisfied with your sinful condition. We were not designed to be satisfied by anything other than our creator, God. And, we wor and when we worship the created... That, that means us too. We can worship ourselves. Do you guys know that? That's called selfishness. When we worship the created instead of the creator, this is where all the problems come from. 
this is, this is where the conflicts in our world come from. I call this a worship disorder. All the problems in the world stem from a worship disorder, like, like anger issues, jealousies, uh, anxieties, addictions, lusts of the flesh and the pride of life, all leading to a disconnect from the abundant, satisfying life that we can have through Christ Jesus. Do you guys see now how idolatry is so much more than that wooden image on the pedestal where we offer incense? It's so much more than that. So again, can you find satisfaction in your relationships? Yes and no. Here's our main point for today. If we look to our relationships for satisfaction, we are doomed to experience failure, and disappointment. The answer to finding real satisfaction in relationships is to not look for satisfaction in those relationships to begin with, but rather in a deep, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. When King Jesus is at his rightful place on your heart, on the throne of your heart, the rest of life, including your relationships, become opportunities to exercise the satisfaction you're already experiencing. We can be satisfied even when things fall apart, even when there's conflict. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Satisfied. As you examine the way in which you're living, as you're examining maybe, maybe some worship disorders in your life, as you examine your relationships and the places that you turn to for satisfaction, what people, things, or ideas do you place your hope in? What things in the created world have replaced King Jesus on the throne of your heart? Do you look to your spouse, your children, your parents, your friends, your career, your good looks. That's not me. As often as these relationships disappoint you, guess what? You're disappointing them as well. We're all worshipers, but we're all still sinners too. Perhaps you stop trying to find satisfaction in counterfeits and look to the source of your soul craving, Jesus Christ. Imagine, imagine what this body of Christ would look like and accomplish if we recognized our adoptive identity, walked as children of light, and tried to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, not just on Sundays, but all the days that end in Y. What would this look like in your family, in, in the way you respond to your spouse, in the way that you parent your children, in, in the way that we care for this, this family? What if that was our lifestyle? What if holiness was our pursuit? I think we would see God moving in mighty, mighty ways in our homes and in this community. As we wrap up here, if the Holy Spirit has poked your conscience today, don't ignore that. Don't, don't leave here deceived into thinking that I'm okay as I am. That's a big lie. You're not. But none of us are. None of us have arrived. We all have 
work to do. We all have idols that need to be cleaned out of our hearts. Remember your adoptive identity. Walk as children of the light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Or maybe, maybe you haven't begun this sanctification journey. If you want to know more about what it means to find satisfaction in Christ alone, please come see me or Pastor Derek after the service. We'd love to share more with you about that. Right now, we are blessed with the opportunity of witnessing this sanctification journey played out in the lives of those who are being baptized today. These individuals are taking a really important step of obedience as they identify with Christ's death through this symbolic act and look forward to participating in his resurrection. Let's pray.